Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. All right. Welcome to Forum, Nature Biotechnologies podcast, where we speak with leading researchers in the field about their work, about recent papers, or sometimes just general topics of interest. My name is Brady Huggett, and today we have a show on genetic screening with CRISPR. And this discussion was run by Marcus Elsner, senior editor at Nature Biotechnology, and he's with me now. So I think the first thing we want to talk about, Marcus, is why this topic? Why do a podcast on genetic screening using CRISPR as a tool? Yeah, over the last year or so, there have actually been quite a lot of developments in using CRISPR uh, tools for screening. The CRISPR screening itself was invented relatively quickly after the tools themselves were discovered. And initially, that was all based either on uh, generating gene knockouts using CRISPR nucleases, or activating or inactivating whole genes using approaches called CRISPR-I or CRISPR-A. Um, now, people have turned to the latest generation of, um, of CRISPR tools, base editors and prime editors, and have applied those to make much more defined changes in the genome, uh, even making individual base mutations uh, to get a very fine-grained understanding of what mutations um, for example, in cancer, actually do. Uh, and how do we decide on the guests for, for the show? So John Dunge is one of the pioneers of the whole CRISPR screening field. Uh, he, in 2016, published um, really a landmark paper, I think, in, uh, in Nature Biotech, presenting the, the first highly optimized uh, library for doing CRISPR screening, both in human and in mouse cells. And then uh, Kimberly Stegmeier, she's one of the most prominent users of uh, CRISPR screening to elucidate um, mechanisms of cancer development, uh, uh, cancer maintenance, uh, immune escape, uh, things like this. And uh, she's also in, uh, involved in uh, the Cancer Dependency Map project which is a really systematic effort of a uh, of large number of groups uh, to uh, systematically uh, investigate uh, dependencies of, uh, of cancers 
to find new new leads for drug development, to prioritize uh, known drugs for clinical trials, and maybe ultimately even to, uh, to use the knowledge to prioritize drugs for um, individual patients uh, once their their genome has been or the cancer genome has been sequenced. Although this might be a few years in the future, they they call that the DEP map. Is that right? That's the DEP map exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think uh, I think that's all we need. So here is episode 13 of Forum. Yeah, so uh, Kim and uh, John, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk to me today. And I think the first question I'm, uh, uh, I'm going to ask is, what is genetic screening? And what do we do when we do a genetic screen? Sure. So, you know, for, for as long as I've been a professional scientist, we've had the sequence of the human genome, and it was pretty quickly clear that we don't know what most genes are doing. Uh, I would say that's still the case, even though we've been working on it for 20 years. And functional genomics is how do we, how do we get at that question? And obviously, the lessons from genetics in model organisms has been to break genes and figure out how the phenotype changes. So that's exactly what we're trying to do. Uh, but now not studying uh, people. Obviously, there's a whole field of human genetics that looks for that, uh, but in, in model systems that we can manipulate. And, and you know, CRISPR is the tool of choice to do that now, but it's, it's hardly the first tool uh, that we've had to, to do that job. Yeah, I think Kim was telling me how she learned about the previous tool of choice. And uh, <laughs> so what did we use before? Sure. So... You know, Marcus, I um, can very vividly remember when I was a postdoctoral fellow in Todd Golub's lab, and we were having lab meeting at the Dana-Farber at the time, and Todd came in very excited. It was, I'm going to say 2001, and he had a paper from the Tuchel lab at Max Planck that described the application of RNAi technology to mammalian cells. And Todd passed the paper out. I still have that copy. It's yellowed and marked up with a highlighter. And he said to us, you know, this is going to change the way that we do science. And of course, our focus is on cancer. You know, and at the time, we really couldn't manipulate genes systematically in terms of inducing their repression or certainly their knockout at the time. You know, and Todd said, you know, can you imagine how we could use this technology? And it it really it's a, such a memorable moment because, you know, it it was just field changing. The fact that we can now one by one manipulate each gene potentially um, in the genome. And so, you know, I, I remember the first project that we actually talked about. And, and this was a project that was led by Ben Ebert in our lab. You know, so chromosome gains and losses are very common in cancer, of course. And we were um, studying leukemia and myelodysplastic syndrome, and there's a recurrent abnormality on, on 5Q. Um, and it was not clear, like, what is, you know, or the, the gene or the genes on that chromosome. And the idea here was to use RNAi to repress one by one the genes in that region and then ask what it did to differentiation. And, and this really led to the discovery of RPS14 as a critical gene in that region. And this, again, was work led by Ben Ebert. But just the, the ability now to do this to scale was, was tremendous. Yeah, I think very quickly people started to really develop large libraries that you could uh, use to uh, knock down hundreds or even genome-wide uh, all genes. But when CRISPR came along in uh, 
2013, people we very quickly, like within a year, started to uh, move away from uh, from siRNA to CRISPR. Why was that? Well, what was the uh, big advantage of using CRISPR? Yeah, so I think there's there's two parts to that. First is you know we should recognize that the CRISPR technology was able to build off of all the hard lessons learned from doing screens with RNAi. You know, you mentioned that RNAi libraries were built markets. Yes, they absolutely were, but we didn't have large scale pooled synthesis yet. We didn't have Illumina sequencing. So all those original screens were read out via microarray, which was really challenging. And so your ability to iterate was a lot slower uh, in, the, in the early 2000s than it was now. But really what made CRISPR so attractive and why uh, you know, the, the field essentially immediately switched using CRISPR is it, it turned out to be far more specific. So RNAi screens uh, you know, have, have a fairly substantial off-target problem. Uh, that doesn't mean it's unsolvable. It doesn't mean that every experiment done with RNAi was incorrect, uh, but it does mean that you need to be a lot more careful and uh, thorough with RNAi than you do with CRISPR. CRISPR just gives much clearer answers much faster uh, and so very quickly became the, the tool of choice. And I guess it shares one of uh, one advantage is that you only need to re a relatively small RNA to be designed compared to I don't know, uh, other tools. Yeah, I remember in the same issue that we published our first CRISPR papers, we had a genome-wide Talon library for, um, uh, for the human genome. But I think that just never got used because it was just, yeah, just wrong timing. Yeah, and you know it, it's interesting to think about you know what if you know th there's no reason that that RNAi needed to be discovered before CRISPR, but uh, or, and and then tailends in between. You know what, what what would the development look like if those had been discovered in different orders? Interesting, uh, interesting conversation over a beer. Uh, but the the point you make, Marcus, about the the small size being able to read out, that's also what made the transition from RNAi to CRISPR so easy. I mean, I, I in many of my slides, I just changed. SHRNA to SGRNA, <laughs> and everything still held. Uh, so again, we could rapidly adapt that, and and it, and it went. Is HRNA still used? I mean, can maybe in in cancer biology, or is that just a totally dead technology? No, so it, it is still used. I, I think, as John said, you know, you have to be really careful about the question of off-target effects. You have to have proper rescues. You need multiple SHs. But I, I think one of the you know, one of the disadvantages to using CRISPR is it's a relatively binary system, particularly if you're looking at knockout of the target, right? So, you know, the target's present, you get HETs or you get homozygous deletion, and you don't get a dose-responsive effect using CRISPR Cas9 cutting. And so sometimes there's an advantage, you know, in using RNAi if you're trying to look at partial repression of your target versus complete knockout. You know, of course, there are new approaches, and I know John is working on one of these because we're, we're working with him on this uh, together. You know, the idea of using tunable CRISPR-based approaches with CRISPR-I, you know, as, a, as another alternative. But we like in our lab when we identify a target to use multiple orthogonal approaches, and sometimes we still will use RNAi, but again, being really careful about having all the right controls. Yeah, and in addition, you know, and, and CRISPR I is, is is absolutely, as Kim mentioned, a, a wonderful technology if you don't want a pure knockout, but you want a tune gene expression. Uh, but it's also worth mentioning that you know one one home that RNAi might still have is all you need to deliver is a small RNA, whereas with CRISPR technology, delivering uh, or pre-engineering your cells to express a large Cas protein 
in some of the more complex model systems, that's really hard and maybe even not really possible to do. Uh, you know, especially if you want to work with with fresh tumors or organoid models or whatnot. That's where you know a well a well constructed RNAi experiment might actually be uh, the right first thing to do. Mm -hmm. So again, people moved very quickly to designing genome-wide libraries for CRISPR. So those early libraries probably had issues. So what, what kind of issues uh, did people encounter when they started to applying well, CRISPR knockouts on, on a large scale? Yeah, I'd say initially, you know, the, the, first off, I mean, I, I remember where I was sitting and who I was talking to when we got our first results, and it was a definite hugs and high five moment. So, you know, <laughs> even out of the box, yeah. it was clear that CRISPR is is going to be a, a game changer. But it was it was also clear that you know these these libraries uh, were pretty big, and and being able to reduce the the scale, these, you know, we we didn't know what we were doing when it came to designing guides. Uh, especially you know, how do you select guides that work from those that don't? And you know we we knew from the RNAi literature that yeah they're likely to be sequence features that make for better SAI RNAs that, than others. And you know why wouldn't the same be true with with CRISPR? And of course it turned out to be the case. And, and I think it it was really with an eye towards large scale systematic studies uh, such as the dependency map that we realized this is where it's going to be impactful. You know if you're doing one screen every three years, uh, whether your library has 120,000 things in it or 80,000 things or 40,000 things, that doesn't make too much of a difference. But if you want to systematically apply CRISPR, and at this point, uh, you know, the number of screens that, that we've been engaged in is not even in the hundreds, it's now in the thousands, those, those efficiency gains really start to, to add up. And, and I think you know, the, the work that Kim has done with, with the pediatric depth map uh, is a great example of that. Mm. Before we talk about the depth map, which is, uh, I think the next topic on the list is um, the reason why we're talking today is that it's, uh, well, now a bit more than five years ago that John, you published that uh, Ivana and uh, Asagio paper uh, with us. So how did you go about differently um, designing that library than uh, what people had done before? Yeah, so that was a paper where we really, uh, for for the first time, we had we had tried to figure out well what are the what are the rules that lead to good guide RNAs versus bad guide RNAs. And again, uh, you know, Kim was mentioning her yellowed copy of an original paper. I've got my marked up version of a Nature Biotech paper from <laughs> let's see, two thousand four, Rational siRNA Design for RNA Interference, uh, which was published <laughs> by Anastasia Karova and, and, and colleagues. And it was, you know, I, it's a it's a wonderfully marked up paper of here's how to go about figuring out how to optimize the technology, and and that was a a, a very important paper in, in my scientific development. It was well, let's do this, but for CRISPR. Uh, so we we generated uh, rules. You know, we we uh, generate a lot of guide RNAs. We measure their activity. And we figure out what are the sequences that that help uh, or harm activity. In the paper that you're mentioning, Marcus, we uh, collaborated with Microsoft Research to apply the latest in machine learning uh, to that problem. Uh, and it's a field that, that's obviously continued uh, to, to develop, and we're getting better and better at guide RNA design. Uh, I think we're starting to asymptote from the standpoint of there's probably not a heck of a lot more juice to be, to be squeezed out of that lemon. You know, we, we're, we're, we're really good at it now. Uh, but again, it was all towards the eye of how do we just make screening these things more efficient so that, you know, numbers of cells don't become limiting, cost doesn't become a, a driving factor. Uh, you know, how can we just get away with smaller and smaller libraries and still uh, still 
get really good coverage of what's happening in the genome. How did you come up with the names? It's Havana, Siajo, Brunello, and Brie. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the humans are named after wine, the mice are named after cheeses, and, and importantly, we we do the empirical test to make sure that they pair well together. So you know, we go through many, many wines to find the right ones. It's it's hard work, but someone's got to do it. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I feel you. Yeah, this, uh, if you if you need volunteers the next time, I'm I, I'm happy to help. <laughs> So Kim, uh, you used, uh, the, uh, I think, especially the Havana library in quite a few of your papers. How did you go, go about uh, uh, selecting the, the library? Was it was that a difficult process? Was it obvious that 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 those were the one to use? Right. No, it's a it's a great question, Marcus. So, you know, again, a little a little bit of history. So back in it's around 2015. Um, Todd Golub, Charlie Roberts, who was at the time at Dana-Farber, he's now the head of um, St. Jude's uh, Cancer Center, um, and Paquita Vasquez, uh, who is a, a research scientist at Broad and has played a leading role in the dependency map. We got together to talk about you know, a challenge in, in pediatric oncology, which is that you know, the diseases tend to have relatively quiet genomes they tend to be less responsive to traditional targeted therapies because they don't have the same panel of mutations as adult cancers and to date have not been as responsive to newer agents like immune checkpoint inhibitors. So there's a real need to find new targets in pediatric cancer. And the work on the dependency map had largely focused on adult cancers, but was really revealing exciting targets. And, and we felt like, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if we could have an effort focused on childhood cancers? And so we all got together and we talked about the possibility of developing a pediatric cancer dependency map. But we felt very strongly that the power of doing this would be if we could fully integrate the data with all of the beautiful data that had been generated in adult cancers. And so because that work had been done with the Ivana Library largely at, at that time, we felt like it was really important to integrate the pediatric effort fully with adult effort so that we could have the, the scope and scale of comparing the pediatric cancers to their adult counterparts. Um, and so that's what we did. We mm -hmm. said, you know, this is gonna be much more seamless if it's fully integrated with the ongoing efforts at the Broad at the time. And no regrets. I mean, I think that was the right decision. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you can explain uh, what the cancer dependency map is and uh, how that relies on, uh, on CRISPR screening. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the, the cancer dependency map is a, a very large scale effort to identify, depend, as it as said, dependencies in cancers to really understand what are the key genes that either disease types depend on or molecular subtypes of cancer depend on. And it's a multifaceted effort that has a number of different nodes. So one aspect of the cancer dependency map has been to bring in large collections of cancer models, mostly to date cancer cell lines, um, but growing collection now of minimally passage models, organoids, lines derived from patient-derived xenograft models, and to perform omics on them. And so initially, largely whole exome sequencing was performed and RNA sequencing was performed. And now that's being expanded to whole genome um, and in a pediatric-focused effort, we're really excited to explore more epigenetic 
features of these different cancer models. And so that's been one part of it is really getting a well-vetted collection of models and performing omics. The second has been the genetic perturbation efforts, which have to date initially started focusing with RNAi and now more recently focusing on CRISPR screening. And here, of course, the idea is one by one, you can delete each gene in the genome and then ask, what does that do to these various cancer models? You know, does that have a deleterious effect on growth? Does it have an advantageous effect on growth over time? So that's kind of another arm. And then there's also a small molecule um, arm to this effort that's been focused on prism screening, where cancer cell lines are barcoded and then pooled and then screened against collections of small molecules. And I mean, to me, this is just a treasure trove of data. Yeah, and I guess the CRISPR screening data then could also be used to prioritize uh, new molecules to develop drugs against. I think that, I guess that's one of the ideas as well. Absolutely. And, and that's been one of the focuses of the work that we've been doing in childhood cancer yeah. is to say, you know, these cancers tend to have quiet genomes. And one of the first questions was, well, do they have fewer dependencies or fewer potential cancer therapeutic targets? And the answer there was no, that the pediatric cancers have actually as many unique dependencies if you compare that cancer to all the other cancers that were screened, um, as do the adult cancers, which for us in peds is really exciting. And we also found that the pediatric cancers tend to have unique dependencies that aren't seen in adult cancer. Um, and I think beyond the, the notion of finding drug targets, we're just learning an awful lot about the biology of these tumors um, that we didn't know before this approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the the depth map as you know, obviously as a discovery engine is great, but as even just a foundational resource is is really critical. I mean, the the world of cell lines has forever essentially been really fraught, but now we have you know really good characterization uh, and and a, a, a lookup table. I mean, the the depth map uh, the depth map website depthmap.org uh, is the first place I go whenever I want to look up something about any new gene. Uh, mm -hmm. Or now, as Kim was saying, you know, a small molecule, a lot of data is collated there. And it's really been through, you know, large scale, long term efforts, not only at the Broad, also uh, colleagues at the, the Sanger uh, in the UK have been, have been, you know, running some parallel and very nicely integrated efforts, I would say, you know, we've made uh, both institutions have really committed to keep keeping each other in the loop. And we've had a lot of wonderful conversations of how to integrate data. Uh, and make sure that you know they're not just two independent depth map efforts. Mm -hmm. uh, but that you know they're we're really building a, a, a data set that uh, talks to each other and, and leverages each other's insight. Marcus, one of the things I'll say is you know it, it is such a highly collaborative effort. You know, as 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 John just you know said, I, I think that's to me been one of the tremendous things about depth map is it's really bringing in expertise across so many different disciplines and people working together to make the data, to use the data and kind of an iterative back and forth about how to do better. And the data is made public. I think that's another really unusual, special and important feature of, of the depth map is that it's made public now before you know, people even potentially have a chance to publish on their cell lines mm -hmm. per se, right? It, we feel it's so important for the community to have this data you know, for these patients with cancer that, that we have to all work together. So. You know, it's it's been a real uh, privilege to be a part of this effort. Mm -hmm. So, can the data be used for clinical decision making? So, you have a child with cancer that you sequence the genome. Uh, so, is the data useful for making uh, treatment decisions? So that it's an interesting question. I would say we're not quite at the point where we're making actual treatment decisions. 
Um, but we are using it to inform clinical trial decisions, right? And so I think, again, one of the strengths to having this data in the public domain is that pharmaceutical companies can also mine the data, you know, and if there is a targeted therapy that's being adult, developed for an adult indication, for example, one can now readily go and look at that data and say, well, are there other disease indications? And of course, I'm very focused on pediatrics, mm -hmm. you know, are there potentially pediatric indications? And you can then use that as a hypothesis generating tool to now go test and validate potentially that compound in, in models of the disease of interest. So I think that's been one really important application. And, and, and that's definitely been the case. We've had, you know, pharmaceutical companies call us up to say, hey, you know, we have this compound, this target, it looks interesting in pediatric cancer X you know, would you be interested in collaborating with us on that? And so, you know, I, I think that's been a real game for the pediatric cancer community. I think the second piece is the idea of finding new biomarkers, right? And so, you know, I think one nice example, you know, I, I like to use examples that, that are proof of concept. You know, there's been a lot of interest in a, a target known as menin in pediatric and adult leukemias that have MLL rearrangements. If you look at DevMap data and you say, where is there the strongest dependency on menin? It is in MLL rearranged leukemias in DevMap. If you look at kind of the next closest neighbor, it's a type of AML that has mutations in a gene known as MPM1. And now clinically that has been shown. And in, in additional lab models, that MPM1 mutant AML also tends to be more dependent on menin and responsive to menin inhibition. So the DevMap actually could have uncovered that, right? And so I think using DATMAP also as a tool for identifying potential biomarkers is another, you know, in the kind of realm of clinic. Again, you wouldn't use it as immediately, oh, now I'm going to give this drug to this patient. But I think it informs hypotheses in the clinic and also new targets, right? So, you know, there are certainly efforts now to develop new small molecules based on targets that are emerging from DATMAP, both in adults and children. Yeah, and, and much harder to quantitate is how many, you know, how many false leads were prevented uh, by looking at that map and immediately saying like, oh, wait a minute, this is a hypothesis that's not going to generalize. We shouldn't develop develop uh, you know th this project any further. Uh, hard, hard to quantitate, but that's a, a really valuable uh, mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. waste of time. <laughs> uh, one concept that in uh, in CRISPR screening that I always find quite fascinating is the concept of uh, synthetic lethality. So um, for that, you need combinatorial, combinatorial screens to find synthetic lethal uh, interactions. And I know that that's not always trivial to do. So um, uh, what are the challenges in uh, doing knocking out one, uh, two or more genes uh, at the same time? Yeah, there's there's a number of challenges. Uh, you know, some some are on the more technical side of how do you how do you successfully deliver multiple reagents into the same cell at the same time and have them both work. <laughs> and, you know, we've, we've been working on this for a while. Cas9 can be a way to get there. Actually, I'm personally more of a fan of using Cas12a, uh, which was previously known as CPF1, because the native biology of that system is sort of more readily amenable to multiplexing. But either, regardless of how you get there, uh, technically, the bigger challenge is 20,000 squared is 400 million hypotheses <laughs> of potential pairwise combinations to test. Uh, 
So how do you, you know, assuming you're just not going to, you know, start at the top and go all the way down, uh, how do you nominate hypotheses for, for what combinations to explore in the first place? Certainly, uh, there's been a lot of progress made just in the last couple of years of uh, looking at paralogs, uh, which I view as a, as a, as a sort of uh, its, its own version of synthetic lethality. Obviously, if two genes have pretty similar sequence, uh, there's a good chance that there's some functional uh, redundancy, but that's very important to look at. I mean, if you only look at the depth map, you would have no idea that MAP kinase is important in cancers because in the vast majority of cases, you actually need to hit both MAP K1 and MAP K3, which are ERK2 and ERK1, uh, you need to hit them both. And so you miss that when doing screens uh, of only single gene knockouts at a time. So just the ability to even say, okay, we're gonna target paralogs and understand what might make for a better drug target. I think there's a lot to be discovered there. But then there's the other version, the, the I, don't know, I, I don't know if I'd call this truer synthetic lethality, but more serendipitous synthetic lethality, which is the, the, the poster child, and there's really no other faces on that poster right now, uh, <laughs> is BRCA1 and, and PARP1, uh, where you have two genes that don't do any, that don't share any evolutionary history, but you know, are in pathways, both of which are, are required, uh, or if you lose both of them, then the cell is dead. So how, how do we, how do we in a systematic way, discover more BRCA-PARP interactions? I think that that is something that is very much an open question. Hmm. Are there other examples, like in the preclinical realm, where CRISPR otherwise screening by screening uh, discovered uh, synthetic lethal interactions have been at least tested in clinical trials? So I think the probably the best examples of that are again maybe a, a sort of side version of synthetic lethality are the collateral damage uh, gene. So if if uh, if a cell loses, you know, it lost this chromosome arm in order to get rid of this tumor suppressor, but then it also uh, lost some other genes in the process, and that provides a, you know, can provide a, a therapeutic window. Uh, so that's a, a version of, of synthetic lethality adjacent, I would yeah, say. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and there are several of those hypotheses that are now uh, move, moving towards the clinic. And sometimes, Marcus, even within the context of current DEPMAP data, you know, for example, we found a, a target that's more highly relevant in pediatric cancer compared to other, and we were focusing on neuroblastoma known as NXT1. And when you mine the data, the, you know, again, this is a single gene depth map type screen. When you mine the data, you do see that poor expression of NXT2, which is paralog, renders sensitivity to NXT1. So depending on the target of interest, you can actually sometimes use depth map data to identify those types of synthetic lethal relationships, more typically in the paralogs, but um, you know, you can sometimes infer that or hypothesize that from the data itself. I've been working with how many uh, cell lines do you say it has uh, depth map screened so far, cancer cell lines? It must be. This point, it's got to be over a thousand. Is that yeah. right, Kim? Yeah, it's at least yeah. over 800. That's the, the last okay. number I had in my slides. Yeah. So, <laughs> but it's pushing a thousand. Yeah. So, so we have definitely now probably passed, uh, like in science, uh, a thousand or more different cell types and organisms that have been screened. Uh, how big are the differences in uh, in CRISPR performance when you look at uh, all those different cancer cell, cell lines, other organisms? So is there a lot of optimization to be done for each individual system or is it do you get relatively good performance across systems? 
Yeah, so there I'd say every every model is its own story. I mean, certainly uh, from a debt map standpoint, there's several QC steps that any particular cell model needs to go through before it gets screened. And you know, there's attrition there. Uh, and so, you know, we're we're over time accumulating uh, sets of cells that we have been unable to screen in DepMap. And you know, it, maybe each one is its own story. Maybe it's a question of you know, is is expression of Cas9 uh, particularly toxic in those cells or problematic in some other way? Obviously, delivery is a, is another issue. There are many cell types for which lentiviral delivery, the the method of choice for for these screens. You know whether it's due to an innate immune response or, or whatever the case may be. You know if you can't transduce the cells, then you can't really do the screen. So yeah, there 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 are definitely fail modes. But I think from a DepMap perspective, uh, it's not necessarily a, a fail mode, but a, a future direction is there are still so many cancer genotypes that are poorly represented uh, in DepMap, and I'm sure Kim can speak a, a lot more to to those limitations and just how much farther there is to go. I totally agree with that, John. I mean, in, in the case of PEDS, we started with a focus on largely solid tumors and some brain tumor models and some hemolignancy, but it was more dominated by solid tumors. And it was based on availability of cell lines that infect well, that grow well in, in culture in 2D, um, and of course, local interest in, in the diseases in our, our local community. But we're now, you know, really planning a, a next generation pediatric cancer dependency map to try to get at, you know, the subtypes that were not well represented in terms of molecular subtypes, but also diseases that were not well represented. And so for many of the brain tumors, for example, we don't have 2D lines that are representative of primary tumors. And rather, in that case, neurospheres do a better job, we think of modeling primary patient disease. And so there's an effort now with the Broad to try to develop ways to screen neurospheres. And, and whether that's going to be genome scale or we're going to have to develop smaller, more focused libraries is still a question. Similarly, for some of the hemalignancies, some of these models, they don't infect well or they don't tolerate Cas9 very well. And so there's going to be another effort focused on the high-risk pediatric leukemia subsets to figure out what's what's the way that we can actually effectively screen these models. So a lot more to do. And, you know, some of the disease types are just not well represented by traditional 2D cell line models. I guess most of the screens that are generally done are in some way or another connected to cell proliferation or cell death. Or So um, how can we screen for more complex phenotypes? Um, like, for example, interactions with immune cells, um, morphology. So, yeah, I guess we need different approaches uh, to screen for these kinds of phenotypes. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's been a lot of progress on, on numerous fronts for, you know, high, higher dimensionality readouts. You know, viability is, is an easy thing, relatively easy thing to screen for. And, you know, it integrates a lot of what the cell is doing, but you don't get a lot of, of insight into why, right? You know, you just know whether the cell is, is there or not. So certainly flow cytometry-based screens uh, were, were pretty quickly adapted uh, for, for CRISPR-based pooled approaches because for a pooled screen, at least, you just need to physically separate the cells you care about from the ones that you don't, and flow cytometry is well-suited to that. Although I should say, uh, you know, a flow cytometry screen is a big technical challenge. It is, it is not something that most people get right 
on the first try. So it's in the realm of like definitely doable and you can make them work. And when they work, they're great. Uh, but there's often a lot more under the surface of, of trial and error to get those to go. But in terms of, of high dimensional readouts, obviously single cell RNA-seq uh, using uh, approaches like, like CropSeq or PerturbSeq, which are all aiming to get at the same thing, uh, there you get a, a single cell RNA profile of your, of your perturbation. Uh, I mean, those, those technologies were first published, I think, in 2016 or so. There, you know, the, the readout is high dimensional, but cost is still a substantial uh, consideration for, you know, you can't really do that genome-wide routinely by any means. Uh, so, so readouts like that. Readouts like uh, you mentioned optical uh, screening. So this is the idea where the readout is an image. Uh, rather than uh, cell abundance. So uh, Paul Blaney, a, a colleague at the Broad, has, has uh, been, been helping to lead that field. Uh, there the idea is you take your pooled library, you put it onto cells, and you examine cell morphology with, with whatever stains you might want to use. And then you determine what guide RNA triggered that morphology by in situ sequencing. Uh, so you know that, okay, this cell has an interesting phenotype and then it, it, that you visualize. And then you do rounds of in situ sequencing to determine what guide RNA was in that cell. That is a, a fairly nascent technology. It was only uh, first described a couple of years ago. Uh, and you know the scale up for that and the, the equipment required uh, is certainly something that is non-trivial. Uh, but at the same time, there are a lot of questions you can ask with an imaging-based approach, especially about, as you said, Marcus, you know, cell-cell interactions, uh, you know, where where there's just no obvious way to do it uh, outside of imaging. And then uh, last, I'll, I'll, I'll make a pitch for a paper uh, that was published in, I think, Science just last month on a new flow cytometry approach where uh, you can you know, really crank up the ability of what a flow cytometer can, can, uh, uh, can interpret to not just you know, fluorescent levels, uh, but really some very, uh, very fine-grained uh, analysis. And you know, the, the, it's just one paper, uh, but I'm really excited by the possibilities that that, that offers. So, Marcus, I, I agree. I mean, they're in the dropout screen, you don't, you know, it's, it's very useful, but you don't know what the phenotype really is. And so in one project, we we evaluated, you know, the top roughly 200 genes that were depleted in neuroblastoma, uh, which is a pediatric solid tumor um, of neural crest origin. And, and we said, you know, what we most care about in this case are genes that when depleted actually lead to cell death. And so, we developed an, a secondary screen. We had a library and developed a secondary screen using a Nexon selection uh, with a, a bead-based approach. And that worked extremely well. We also said, you know, we want to make sure that the targets are valid in vivo before we start going too deep into any one target. And so we had a series of secondary assays where we did a Nexon selection in vivo screening and then also used CRISPR-I as an orthogonal approach for target validation. And, and that worked very well. We've also gotten excited about these positive selection flow-based screens, um, particularly around targets of immunotherapy um, in pediatrics. And so, you know, in, um, in, in neuroblastoma, there's a ganglioside GD2 that's expressed on the surface of cells that's a target of an antibody-based therapy known as dinatuximab. And we, um, we got interested in what regulates GD2 expression and so did a genome-scale CRISPR screen um, looking at, you know, cells that gain GD2, cells that lose GD2 by flow sorting. And it's absolutely beautiful data. It's, it's who's who in chromatin complexes. Um, and, and so we're sold on these positive selection screens. 
We're also using them to study fusions, to ask what regulates fusion oncoproteins in pediatric cancers. And that's a very common theme in, in childhood cancers are transcription factor fusions. So lots more exciting screens to be done. Yeah, it's interesting to, to hear that uh, in vivo screens have now become really feasible. I guess that must still be quite a logistical challenge, uh, but is that something that is in the realm of possibility, at least for larger labs now? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the there's a effort here, Eric Broad, uh, led by Rob Manguso and Kathleen Yates, that have uh, building off of some work done originally in Nick Haining's group uh, to look at. Uh, what are genes you can modulate in a tumor that affect uh, response to checkpoint inhibitors? Uh, and the, the the original screen was published in, I think, 2016, 2017. That identified a target, PTPN2, that is now being clinically pursued, a clinical trial starting this year on that as a target, which was you know directly identified from a CRISPR screen. Uh, there are absolutely challenges of, of doing screens in mice. Uh, you know, I, I don't think one's first screen should be a genome-wide approach in mice. That seems like a bad idea. <laughs> uh, but but it, it is something where if you're if you're systematic about it, you know, do, doing everything at once, bad idea. But breaking it up uh, and and you know, prosecuting uh, different parts of the genome over time, I think is a uh, you know, numerous groups have now shown that to be a, a wonderful strategy. A colleague, uh, Kristen Naus, uh, over at uh, MIT has uh, done a, a very nice screen genome-wide in mouse liver, uh, looking at as a, as a model of, of regeneration. There are screens now being done to look at uh, CAR T-cell phenotypes, uh, which you, know, you almost certainly have to do that in vivo. Uh, so it's definitely something where uh, you know, if the biology requires uh, that you need to do it in vivo, it, it's certainly possible to do it. It requires optimization, but the, the path is there for sure. It's interesting to hear that uh, you can also move uh, look at phenotypes beyond cancer, like you mentioned with the liver uh, regeneration. Uh, I think that uh, uh, that's also probably quite interesting, also for neuroscience. Also reminds me of uh, April first paper that Fyodor Urnov and I always want to write as the simultaneous all gene knockout in mice. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so. I think one thing that I, I also find uh, quite interesting is that now, um, I think over the last year or two, we've been moving beyond uh, knockouts with the development of uh, base editor screens and, and now probably prime editor screens. So where do you see the role of uh, those a bit newer approaches in maybe first in cancer and then maybe also in other fields? Yeah, so they're, you know, going, it's just a finer resolution of the genome, right? I mean, if, if one question is, what does a gene do? Uh, and you're, you're asking it at, at that level of, you know, several thousand bases of information as, as one unit. Uh, now we have technologies that allow you to get down to, well, what does one base do? And, you know, certainly that's the next frontier of, of human genetics. We've done a really good job categorizing what are all the SNPs that people can have that add up in one way, shape or form to give risk to some disease, but what to do about that uh, is, is still very much unclear in the vast majority of cases. And so I would imagine that you know, these technologies you mentioned, base editors as an example, that allows you to you know, more or less change one base at a time uh, into another base and see how the cell is different. So the approaches for how to do the screens will be the same. I mean, everything that we were just talking about, about whether we're doing a flow-based screen or an imaging screen, whatever the case may be, those technologies plug into that really well. You're just asking a much more focused question. You know, I have I have no interest in doing a 
3 billion, you know, change every single base in the genome <laughs> library. I will, I will not be making that library anytime soon. <laughs> so, Kim, do you think that could help if you think again about uh, maybe uh, patient care? Um, when we sequence a genome, there's there are all those variants of unknown significance that that are found, I think, in every cancer genome. Do you think that might help to make sense of those? Absolutely. When when you asked what the applications might be, that was that was the first that came to mind for me as you know somebody who does cancer research. That you know we've been involved in our lab uh, with Yana Pickman, who is training in my lab now, is is really leading this effort to to look at in high risk pediatric leukemias. Um, can we match genetic changes in that leukemia to targeted therapies? And this is a question that comes up not infrequently. That there is a gene that's known to be recurrently mutated. We see a novel mutation. It's a variant of uncertain significance. And what do we do? And you could imagine using assays for transformation um, coupled with a base editing type screening approach focused on specific genes of interest as another tool to try to validate more broadly these variants. So I think absolutely it's, it's an exciting approach for that indication. And it's a it's a it's a huge goal to uh, to have a catalog of what you know every possible base change in the in the human genome leads to, but it is still finite. It, it's not like chasing COVID variants where we just have no idea what's going to come next. It's a it's a solvable challenge, and you know I think that there's you know there's been wonderful work from from Jay Shandure's lab uh, using gene editing approaches to build that lookup table uh, for BRCA1. Uh, these are laborious screens, but you know they need to be. If they're done well and they're done once, now we know, and then we have that lookup table. Uh, and and over time, we just need to do that for you know pretty much everything. But but it's, it's a finite and ultimately achievable goal. I think that brings me to my last question. And so, if you if you had one wish in in CRISPR biology or screening that a fairy could grant, what would you ask the the CRISPR fairy to do? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen David Liu in a couple of days. Next time I <laughs> yeah, I think uh, now, I mean, now he has his nickname. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, for for me, I'll go in a different direction from from what my research does. But I, I think the the therapeutic application of CRISPR is just tremendously exciting. There's going to be so many things that we'll be able to manipulate. With CRISPR technology, that you know, you just can't really fathom a way to get there with, with other therapeutic modalities. But their delivery uh, just remains such a, a tremendous challenge. So you know, we can do a lot uh, with, with delivery to cell types that we know how to hit, like like the liver or uh, you know stem cells that you can remove, uh, edit, and, and put back in. But there's a whole host of organs where you know we're still pretty far from being able to to do that in a controllable way. So uh, I think the the if the CRISPR fairy can figure out how to make delivery to any cell type of interest as trivial as possible, uh, I think that's going to have just tremendous real world impact. Marcus, I have to say that was my same CRISPR fairy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and specifically, you can imagine, you know, I said fusions are very common in pediatric cancer. And so you have a unique opportunity to potentially target, right, that fusion. It's not present in other normal cells. But the delivery question is a really tricky one, you know, or regions of, of amplification, right, where you have both the on-target and the, the off-target DNA damage in that context that could actually be therapeutically 
very relevant with a high therapeutic window. But again, like, can we deliver this approach in solid tumors or widely metastatic tumors in bone, for example? But I think if the CRISPR fairy could grant that wish, <laughs> it would be extremely important clinically. Yeah. With that, I think this just leads me to say thank you very much uh, for taking the time. I learned a lot. Yeah, it was real fun. Great chatting with you, Marcus, and you as well, Kim. Good yeah, to see you. Great as well. Thank you, Marcus and John. That was fun. There it is, episode 13 of Forum. Thanks to both guests for making this happen. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can find it wherever you find your podcasts by searching for Nature Biotechnology and Forum. You'll also find our sister podcast, First Rounders, and our 10-part serial podcast, Hope Lies in Dreams, about the history of antisense, Stan Crook, and the disease spinal muscular atrophy. Okay, that is all. I will talk to you on the next forum. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.